Hi, Sarah. It's good to see you. I'm just going to talk like I'm just talking to you tonight. You're the only one who will talk back. It'll work out really well for everybody else as well. Because they don't have to talk back, which is the most relieving thing for them. Hey, our kids can head to children's worship with Katie. So if you're in kindergarten through fifth grade or you just want to go, you can head that way. The rest of us, uh, you can grab your Bible. We're going to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3. Excited to spend some time worshiping in God's Word with you tonight. And so, um, I just, let's just, as you're turning there, let me, let me just ask this. How many of you are like watching the weather forecast and are like, yeah, like this is an adventure Anyone? Like halfway? All right. I'll, I'll, like, I'm just trying to figure out who we need to like institutionalize right now, you know, and just, uh, I, man, I just feel like the first half of the winter, I don't know, this is, this is where I'm at. Uh, we get, we get into like leading up to Christmas, there's a lot of busyness and excitement. January, uh, it's cold and it's snowing, but like, you just kind of, you have enough of like a good attitude about it that you're like, I can do this. And then like this is the time of year where you're like, wow, how many months does this last? Right? Like, why are we not done yet? Like, when's the green stuff come? Uh, and I, I've just gotten like progressively lazier. My driveway was, you know, the first time they plow the driveway, it's like the banks are like halfway through your yard and they've tore out like all of the lawn. They're like, we got to just be prepared. Now it's like barely wide enough to get your car through. And they're like, if it snows anymore, we're just, we're toast, we're done. And so you just kind of watch, right, as life just wears, right? And it, and it has this sort of sense of wearing down and the sense of kind of tiring you out a little bit. And, uh, and here we are at six o'clock and it's still dark out and it's miserable cold, and it's like a thousand degrees below zero with, with the wind chill. It's not actually that cold, just the wind chill, like that makes a difference or is more encouraging. Uh, and in all of that, I think it's easy for us to find some level of discouragement uh, or, or even have maybe a little bit of like a crotchety attitude, right? Like, can I use that word? I'm too late now. And so, uh, in that, right, we just, we just have this way, I, I know that this is kind of me revealing a little bit of my heart, like this is the time of year where, where my level of like exuberance and optimism kind of wanes a little bit, and uh, one of the things that was really encouraging to me this week uh, in the midst of all that cold and looking at the forecast of all the cold to come and the, the you know, short days and terrible weather and what, what, why do we choose to live up here type of mentality, right? Maybe, maybe you really do just love this. And like I said, some people are crazy. It's all right. I'm cool with it. Uh, but one of the things that was such an encouragement to me was that we have this ability to gather together as the church of God and come to the truth of the scripture, the word of God, uh, and just let our, our souls be nourished by it as we would rest in that. All right, so I want to I pray and just encourage you to do that uh, as we together spend some time worshiping through God's word tonight. All right, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for all that you are and that you give us life and breath. And 
uh, in you we have our existence. We, we are here to serve you and glorify you with all of our lives. And that uh, for us, the, the bride of Christ, the church, that uh, not only do we have life physically in this uh, reminder of, of what a glorious and miraculous thing that is as we look out to the horizon and see all around us at this time of year just uh, death and desolation and, and that you have made us alive. But not only have you made us alive physically, but as we study your word tonight, we remember you've made us alive spiritually, that you, you breathed your spirit into us and transferred us from death to life, that you, you made us a new creation in Christ. And I, I pray that that would be something that we could cling to and rejoice in so greatly and that it would uh, lift us, encourage us, and help us continue to press on in the desire to bring glory to your name and to praise you in all of our life and all of the earth. We pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. We um, are continuing in a series in John. So if you have your Bible, you're already in John chapter 3. We're going to spend some time tonight, and, and honestly, I'm excited about the next few weeks in particular because we've said all along that kind of overarching in John's gospel is him just working to give us the identity of Jesus, that uh, all other things are, are sort of built into or built up into uh, creating a picture of, an understanding of the true Jesus Christ according to John's gospel so that you might believe in him and in believing in him you would know that you have eternal life in his name and in nothing else. And so uh, as we move through it over the next several weeks what you'll find is that the bulk of what we'll do is just read the narrative. John is, is essentially just telling the story and telling us what happened and kind of how it happened and honestly as we've, we've said this, is other than the synoptic gospels, John kind of stands on his own that he's not all that concerned about peripheral details. He's not even that concerned about the chronology of what's going on. Uh, he's not concerned too much about the context around it as much as he is more than anyone else in the scripture concerned about you seeing Jesus in the way that he interacted with people, seeing Jesus in the miracles he did, specifically the ones that John picks, for the sake of you knowing more and more about his identity. And so he, he only gives us, in fact, eight different signs or miraculous things that Jesus did. Uh, though he says that if I were to try to write them all down, there aren't enough books in the world to contain such a thing. Uh, but he does so with a real specific intent and a specific purpose. And then he tells us in the same way about some spe specific interactions with individuals that Jesus is going to run into. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two of those interactions that I think best give us the epitome of what it looks like to miss the gospel and what it looks like to receive the gospel according to the culture that we live in today. Here's, here's what I mean by that. Uh, by and large, people who come to reject the good news of Jesus Christ, whether it's actively or passively or just misunderstood in our culture, tend to do so in one of two ways. There's, there's two things that become really popular for those who don't know and follow Jesus. The, the first is that you find people who have just believed that they've lived a life that is, is too broken, 
it's too sinful, it's too wrong ending, it's, it's too far down a path that is outside of godliness that they could ever change that. And so they're not really church-going folk, and we don't really do things the way that uh, those Christian people do things, and I'm just, I'm just too much of a mess for God to redeem that. And so that's one category. We're going to hold that until next week because I think that's a pretty cool category. However, the one that in our context, honestly, in this rural southwest corner of Wisconsin that I think is more common than the other is actually the very moralistic, live the right way, damnable good works of pride that says, I'm good enough to do it on my own. How do I become right with God? What's the best way for me to live? It's just to do the right things. I don't, I don't need to kind of get sucked into this religion stuff because ultimately my God is me working hard. It's doing things the right way. And it's often very moral, right? I, I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I put in an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. I'm hospitable to others. I would give them the shirt off my back. We, I mean, we call it Wisconsin nice, right? Like, I am all about caring for other people, and I'm doing good things. And so when you ask the question, how would you be right with God, the answer is most commonly by being a good person, and that's what I am. And if you ask someone, what makes you a Christian frequently from this large contingent of people, which, and, and I'm not naive to think that it probably even includes some of us who sit in this building tonight and tomorrow morning, uh, is answers like, well, you don't, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't swear, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't do all of these bad, immoral things. And so a Christian is somebody who lives walking straight and narrow, doing the things that they're supposed to do, as do I. I think that's the most common in a kind of conservative rule culture that we live in that misses Christ while holding and clinging on to the good works all around it. Amen? So let me give you some encouragement before we jump into the account uh, that I, I think will help us. This is not a new problem. And it's, it's not a Wisconsin-specific problem. It's not a rural culture-specific problem. Throughout the history of humanity, one of the most frequent ways people would miss the Lord was getting sucked into the pride of thinking that they could just work hard enough to be right with God. In fact, uh, we're going to be introduced with a, with a man tonight who has built his whole life upon this cause. So pick up with me in the end of chapter 2. I want you to see this. To, John gives a real specific context to what happens here in John 3. Now, this is verse 23 of chapter 2. When he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, if you remember, let me catch you up from where we were in this last week. Uh, 
John chapter 2 describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, and it's, it's rather dramatic. He starts off up in Cana of Galilee, a nowhere town, making wine out of water. Uh, people are really excited about it, and some people are starting to rumble and, and figure out that maybe there's something to this guy. Uh, out of that, rather than taking said momentum and beginning to build a following, as any, anyone in the earthly sense today might do, take their 15 minutes of fame and really use it to catapult themselves and magnify themselves. Jesus recognizes his plan and purpose in the Lord is better and bigger than that, and so uh, he's making low of his profile. Uh, he shows up in Jerusalem, his disciples, who are really starting to believe deeper and deeper as they've watched him turn this water into wine and do some things along the way, uh, come there with him. He walks into the temple. He throws over tables. He's pouring out money changers, bags of money. He's driving out the animals. And everybody kind of puts on pause and goes, whoa, hang on. Give us a sign to tell us that you have authority to do this. And Jesus says, you're going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. And foretells his death and resurrection. They completely miss it. It goes over their head. Even the disciples, it goes over their head. It says afterwards, when this happens, they remember that he said this, and they believe in a greater extent. But then out of it, Jesus continues his ministry, continues doing signs, and people are kind of drawn to the, the buzz that is around him, drawn to the signs. And rather than Jesus kind of drumming this up, the Bible warns that he's not entrusting himself to these crowds because he knows what is in man. That man looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And so John 3 begins with a zoomed in picture of this very truth as it goes. And so let's Let's read a little bit. We'll do like we did last week, and for the next few weeks, this will kind of be the mentality. We're just going to read a couple verses, give you a bunch of context around it. We'll read some more verses and do the same thing over and over again. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so we learned some things right out of the gate. Let's kind of talk about them. Uh, Jesus is still in Jerusalem that night. Uh, Nicodemus comes up, and the Bible tells us a couple things about him. First, that he was a Pharisee. So you have to understand that at this time, to be a Jew was an identity religiously, but it was identity religiously in the broadest sense, and then it would be segregated into smaller sections. So among the Jews were a group called the Sadducees. They were primarily those who would man the temple. They were very wealthy. Uh, they were, um, if, if we were going to try to translate them most uh, mirrored to our current culture. They were prosperity gospel kind of people. Uh, they actually did not believe in eternity, in heaven, in hell. They felt like uh, God was going to reward those who lived best, which makes sense because they were the richest and most powerful of all the Jews. And so they had felt like they had done the best job and therefore God was giving them the best things. Uh, they were a marvelously corrupt people. They're going to lead the charge in killing Jesus. However, among these sects was another sect, about 6,000 Jews. That's all. Not very many at all who were known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were massively 
legalistic. What I mean by that is that they had built up who they were based on the law of Moses in the Old Testament. In fact, um, the word Pharisee, it comes, comes from a Greek root that means to separate. So, so the Pharisees were, were literally just, that's the word for separate ones. They were different from, separate, set apart from all of the rest of the people around them and did not associate very well with all of the people around them so that they could keep all portions of the Mosaic law as they saw it on the outside. Now, the way that they did this was um, kind of clever, actually. What they did was in order to make sure that they wouldn't break by the legalistic standard, the letter of the law, in Old Testament law, they would set up laws to keep them from getting close to the actual law that they might break, right? And so, um, so rather than, if the speed limit was 55, going 54, they would set their speed limit at 50 so that if they broke their speed limit, they still hadn't broken the Mosaic law, right? Uh, it seems, seems like a fair amount of wisdom. I'll give you another example of how I think we see this even to this day uh, in our own lives. Um, earlier this week, my oldest daughter, Clara, who is, is particularly clever and creative thinking, uh, she's not here tonight, so I can speak about her by name, and I'll pay for it tomorrow when she watches the video. Uh, but Clara, who is, who is a real kind of deep-level thinker, comes to me earlier this week and says, hey, I'm done with my school. Can I go over to the neighbor's house and play? And I uh, am an opportunistic thinker, and so anytime I know that she's motivated by something she wants to do, I know that I could get something that she has to do out of the way first. And so, uh, it's good parenting, you can keep that tip. Uh, and so I said, you can as soon as you clean, you, you get to pick up your room. And she kind of uh, knows that she's got some negotiating skills, and she goes, Dad, that'll take forever. My whole room? Are you kidding? I said, okay, I'll tell you what. You just pick up the stuff that's on the floor. If it's, if it's on your bed, uh, if it's somewhere else in the room hanging on something, don't worry about it. Just, just get the floor. And so what happens is uh, she goes into her room, and she's out like 20 seconds later, right? And, and she goes, I clean it up, and I, and I don't believe her. Not because I have reason not to trust her, but because every other time I go in there, and that's actually not true, right, parents? And so uh, I said, okay, let's check. And so I walk in, and sure enough, the floor the floor's pretty clean. Uh, in fact, not only is the floor clean, but her bed, which was once kind of like pretty messy, is also completely cleaned off. And so I, I said, Clara, I told you you didn't have to do your bed. How'd you get... Hold on. Okay. Now we're now we're talking. That that was gonna just get me all night. Okay, so so I look and I'm like, Claire, you clean your bed off too. And she said, she said, Yeah, I just in case you were going to come in and say, I didn't do a good enough job. I went above and beyond and did this. Amen, right? Here's, here's the problem, though. They don't have doors on their closet. And so, when I walk into the room and this is my view, things look good. 
closet's over here. Now we're in trouble. Because, because cleaning, right, wasn't really cleaning. Cleaning was stuffing into the closet. She must have learned that from her mom. I was cleaned the right way when I was growing up. But here's, here's the thing, right? This is exactly what the Pharisees had made their life into in a sense of legalism. It was external obedience to keep things looking like they had done what the law had required. And ironically, what they were doing is just kind of interior, uh, not maintaining a lifestyle of holiness or desire or compassion or mercy. Uh, Jesus is going to actually say, woe to you, you've neglected the weightier things of the law, like compassion and justice. In your desire to keep even beyond the most uh, legalistic external things of the law, it's like you've just shoved everything into the closet. He calls them a whitewashed tomb or somebody who cleans the outside of a cup but doesn't clean the inside. Uh, He says, you have been faithful to tithe even your mint and your dill. Uh, They're taking their herbs, right, and they're giving a tithe on even the stuff that they have in their spice jar. That's above and beyond in the level of legalistic obedience. And then he says, but then you've neglected to have compassion and mercy upon people. And so you've made things that are important on the outside as paramount to the things that really matter, which is the heart of the issue. And so Nicodemus is among these people, a Pharisee, very bent upon doing things right according to the law. Now, not only that, but it also tells us he's a ruler of the Jews. Now, not all Pharisees were rulers. Uh, When it speaks about the rulers, it's speaking specifically about 71 people who are known in that time as the Sanhedrin. Uh, They were the council of the Jewish leadership who made all decisions regarding religious life in Judaism. Now, let me give you kind of a little first century civics lesson so you understand this. Uh, At this time, all of the land of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and the surrounding areas are subject to the Roman Empire. They have taken over all of it, and as Rome moves out, uh, Rome does something a little bit different than most other empires before them. They don't really care about cultural transformation. They're just going to let you sort of play in your own sandbox so long as you continue to pay your taxes and feed and house their armies so that they can press on and expand the empire. And so what they would do is they just appoint people to be in the governing authority in that area with the hope above all things that they would keep peace, the Pax Romana, that the, the peace would remain in the Roman Empire so that on the outskirts of the empire they could continue to fight wars. And so in Judea, what was put in place was uh, guys named Herod who were the overseers of all of that province within the Roman Empire, and they would then associate and cooperate with the main governing entity of the people, which was the Sanhedrin, which is 71 guys, mostly Sadducees, as we mentioned earlier, and some Pharisees, which happens to include Nicodemus. They were in charge of all things religious in the land of Judea. Now, let me help you with this so you can think about this, Jesus, for and throughout his ministry, is going to be, for better or worse, almost at war with this council. Why is that? Well, because he's very threatening to who they are. That 
as Jesus comes and has an authority, not from the council, but an authority from God as his own father, he supersedes and moves around them. And so constantly, they're interested in getting rid of him in any way that they can. However, lest you think, man, doesn't really seem like that's the case. How did three years go by before they actually get him onto a cross? You understand a little bit about geography. I got a map back there. You got that, Samuel? Can you throw that up here? The, the Sanhedrin holds their authority in Jerusalem and the surrounding land of Judea. There we go. Back in action. All right, so out of this, the Sanhedrin finds their governing authority in the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judea. North of that is Samaria, the land of the Samaritans. More on that next week. Uh, The Sanhedrin has no authority there. Off to the east, across the Jordan River, the Sanhedrin has no authority there. Or north of that, in the land of Galilee, where you see places like Cana and Capernaum and Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee, you find the land where Jesus spends the bulk of his time in ministry, which again, the Sanhedrin has no authority over. And so the times that Jesus is going to most actively clash with the ruling body of the Jews is when he comes down to Jerusalem for the days of Passover. And so every time Jesus comes down once a year to Jerusalem in the land of Judea, the thing that we're going to see again and again and again in his ministry is that this governing entity is going to go hard against him because he steps outside of their authority, which is almost universal. I say almost because the one thing that is held from their authority is the ability to put people to death, which is going to be real important about three years from this very interaction. So Nicodemus has a problem. Nicodemus is a part of this authority. He sees Jesus as a significant challenge to this authority. However, he's been awakened by some type of curiosity in the things that Jesus is doing. That's what we see in verse 2. He says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, uh, the other thing we see in this is Nicodemus doesn't come in the midst of broad daylight. He doesn't come to the temple. He doesn't come to a place where others are around. In fact, the Bible is very specific that Nicodemus shows up by night. That he comes under the cover of nightfall to find an opportunity to approach Jesus and say, Hey, listen, I can see it. I can see that you are a teacher come from God. Now, implied in this very statement is the question we see other places in Scripture. I think about the the rich young ruler in the Gospel accounts that says, Good teacher to, to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nicodemus has come to Jesus, said, Hey, I know you're from God. How do I get on your team? What do I need to do? With the background of a ruler who is well-accomplished, well-respected, and well-revered in the society, and a Pharisee who has been living his whole life trying so hard to follow the rules. And Jesus answers him and says to him this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
right? That's, uh, I'm hoping that's a rhetorical question. Otherwise, it's the worst question in history, right? Nicodemus is just confused. Confused by what Jesus says. He says, you must be born again. And so Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that means physical birth, like your water broke, you had a baby. It's not talking about baptism. And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's a physical birth and a spiritual birth that comes as well. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Listen, you, you've worked your whole life to follow these rules, to uphold these laws, to do things the right way. And much like Paul the Apostle later, Nicodemus was good at it. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was one who had been so successful at doing the right thing that he had earned the respect of people. And yet, Jesus looks at him and says, you have to be born again. The Bible is so consistent in this that if you and I wish to have eternal life, if you and I wish to be reconciled to God, if you and I wish to be right with God, it will never be on the basis of how many good things you do or how few bad things you do. It will never be on the basis of you at all. Over and over and over again, the Bible is going to tell you that someone in Christ is made new. They're born again. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, listen to this, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Titus said that God saved us, Christ saved us, not on the basis of deeds, not on the things we've done, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that means new birth, being born again, and by renewing by the Holy Spirit. Peter said it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or in 1 John, he wrote it this way, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus looks at a guy who has done everything right his entire life and says, it's not about what you do. You have to be born of God. 
You have to be born again. The, the church word for it is you have to be regenerated. The Holy Spirit has to transform you so that you are no longer dead in trespasses and sins, but have been made alive in Christ. Nicodemus misses it at first, and then Jesus uh, responds with how this happens in uh, one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. We'll, we'll catch 9 through 15 in a minute, but go down with me to verse 16 as Jesus answers Nicodemus when he says, how can these things be? Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, so that, but so that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is, this is Jesus' answer to how can this be? You and I are born again through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not by the things you do, and it doesn't matter how good you do them or how hard you work. It'll only be through faith in him. Um, I, I'll give you, give you a story to close. The, this, and and I'm, I'm just going to apologize in advance. This is a weird story, and I almost, I almost feel bad giving you this illustration for what it looks like to place faith in Jesus instead of working so hard in morality because I think you're going to think you're going to remember it for a long time and you're going to feel like that's so dumb and why did Nick tell me this but that's like a real half-hearted apology um I love I I watch a lot of movies and I, I love movies that are like adventure action epic movies and I grew up and at far too young of an age, uh, I watched Indiana Jones. A couple of you, all right? Back when, before Harrison Ford was like 92 and still trying to make movies. Uh, he's like a young guy, like in, a hero, you know, in this movie. And, and like those descended really fast. But the first one, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, pretty cool movie, like pretty technically advanced for its day. I, I looked it up, it was like 1981, uh, before some of us were born, you know, I mean, that's an old movie. Uh, no, nah, not before everybody was born. But, but 1981, Indiana Jones comes out, cool movie. Uh, here's, here's the premise of the movie, uh, that Nazi Germany is looking for the Ark of the Covenant, right? The, the Bible's Ark of the Covenant, and, uh, and it's fiction, right? They're not going to find it, and when they do, it's not going to suck everybody's soul off of their face and the weird stuff that that movie has. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, this crew right here, don't worry about it. Uh, Maybe, maybe later. It'll give you nightmares, I'm telling you, for real. Maybe not. You'd probably be like, oh, that's such like bad CGI or whatever that even is. Uh, however, um, before all of this, the Nazis are searching for the Ark of the Covenant. And the way that they're going to find where it's buried is there's like some special medallion that uh, tells them where they should go in some special room that had been built out to provide a map. And you would hold this medallion at a certain, on a certain staff or pole at a certain time of day and it would reflect through based on the sunlight in a prism and it would cast a shadow right where they were supposed to dig and so uh, the bad guy at one point grabs the medallion while it's sitting in a fire and he burns it onto his hand teaser alert you can't have a spoiler alert on a movie that's 40 years old uh, 
the guy gets it on his hand and he's digging uh, because they've made like a replica of this medallion based on the inscription that's been burned into his hand. And so they've read it. Uh, however, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, right, takes it to this guy who can read this ancient language, uh, the actual medallion that he's gotten his hands on. And they take and read the side and it says, you've got to build a staff that's six foot tall. And then he flips the medallion over and on the other side it says, and then take away one foot. And the guy, Harrison, Indiana Jones, and the other guy look at each other, and this is, this is what they say. They're digging in the wrong place. And then they go, and they, they find the ark. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens after the movie. It's not real important, but here's, here's my point. This is what I think about. Our culture is filled with people who are working so hard and, and they're just digging and digging and digging in this life. They're digging for purpose and they're digging for satisfaction and they're digging for meaning and they're digging for, for something to make them right and whole. And, and the, the prevailing mentality is if you don't have it, dig harder. And dig faster. And dig more. And, and Jesus looks at a Pharisee and a ruler who's doing the exact same thing with his life. And he says, you're digging in the wrong place. And so it don't matter how fast you dig. And it doesn't matter how hard you dig. You never find purpose there. You, you'll never find your value there, you will never find reconciliation there. You're digging in the wrong place. You must be born again. You gotta come to me. You gotta place your faith in me. And all this work and all this toil and all this to try to claim your own righteousness it's just going to wash away in me. Here's, here's what I want to do to close this evening. I want to pray, and then I, I want to take the Lord's Supper together. I, I want to lead you in prayer because um, so often we, we preach these sermons, and, and there's this kind of focus on somebody else. There's somebody else I know that has been toiling, that's been working so hard, that's been digging all of their life in the wrong place. And, and the truth is, I think it's some of you. And so I want to pray for you. I, I want to pray that you, maybe, maybe tonight for the first time, or maybe tonight is a refreshing and a renewal, that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, His only begotten Son, who was given for us so that we would not perish, but that we could have eternal life, life in His name. That you would stop digging in the wrong place and you'd place your faith in Him. And then we're, we're going to remember that death and that resurrection and why that gives us the ability to have faith in Him, why, why it changes where we might dig. Pray with me. 
Lord, Father. I, I just, I've been so convicted this week that we're just, we're just a people full of toil and labor and, and bombarded with it on every front and side that we would see around us that you just got to do better and be better and work harder and do more and maybe it will shake out to be enough in the end. And I, I think about Nicodemus and know that what you told him holds true for us today. That it doesn't matter how hard you work, you'll never find it unless you're born again. Unless you're one who is made alive in Christ. And so I, I pray that there would be some tonight, maybe, maybe tomorrow online, maybe uh, tomorrow in our gatherings this week that would place their faith in you, that, that your spirit would open their heart, would make them alive, that they would transfer from death to life, dead in trespasses and sins, to alive eternally and spiritually in you. We trust in that. We place our faith in it. We worship it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, if you...